Well, good morning. Um, I'm going to pray before I start um, for this service, so if you would, pray with me. God, thank you for what we're about to learn in advance, and I just ask that you would be our teacher this morning. Um, I pray that you would apply these words to our lives and help us to understand them. I pray that anything that is merely of me would be quickly forgotten, but that which is of you would be remembered and would be remembered for a long time, and we would apply it to our lives. And so I just ask you to be the one who would put this into our hearts and our minds, um, and we would learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So last week, we began a new series called Spending, Somebody else's Mo- Spending Someone Else's Money. And so uh, today we are at Spending Someone Else's Money Part 2. And I wanted to review a little bit um, from last week, partially because what we learned last week was just foundational. And really, like all of the rest of the things we'll learn in this series, I think will be built upon what we learned last week. And also, um, there are several people who are here this morning who were not here last week. And so you really do need to know what we said last week. I will suggest, um, if you weren't here last week, going back and getting the full version of it, because I, I don't have time to re-preach last week's sermon. But if you would go onto our website, you can watch it on our YouTube channel or listen to it straight from our website. Um, and I think that will help you in understanding the rest of the series. But for now, let me just go ahead and just tell you a few things that we said last week that should set up for what we're going to learn this week. Um, the first thing is, last week we learned that money doesn't actually exist as a commodity of its own. Rather, it represents another commodity. You guys remember, those of you who were here last week? This was the graphic that we used. If you could put it up, a graphic's probably being a little generous. This is something I drew um, last week. And so this is dollar bills, and it represents, right, the dollars that you have, whether we're talking about green pieces of paper in your wallet or um, the numbers that are in your bank account. Like, we have dollars, but the dollars that you have really are not, they're a representative of another thing. That's the only reason they're valuable. That's what I meant by money is not a commodity of its own. That is, the reason you want these is because you can exchange them for stuff, right? Stuff that you can eat, stuff that you can live inside of, stuff that you can drive around, if, 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 if this was just green pieces of paper that you couldn't exchange for stuff, then you wouldn't want them, right? I don't know anyone that, that, that collects little green pieces of paper other than money. And the reason why this one is valuable isn't because it's valuable on its own. It's valuable because we can trade it for the stuff we actually want, right? When, when we say we want money, you don't really want money. You want the stuff that you trade your money for. We also talked about last week that money is something that um, can be a representation not only of stuff, but the money that we have is also representative of time. That's why there's a clock here. That many of you give 40 hours of your week to somebody in exchange for these. And the hand is here because some of you don't just give time, but you give like energy, effort, you do work, right? There's certain skill that you have that causes somebody to pay you. And so there are many of you that give like skilled labor, and you do 30 or 40 or 50 hours a week of that, and so you you trade it for money that you then turn around and trade for stuff, like a roof over your head or, you know, food to eat. Some of you even take time and effort and exchange it for money and then turn around and pay for someone else's time and effort, right? So we talked about that last week, and it's important to see the connection here, that money is just representative of other stuff. Now, the reason we put this down here, this is supposed to be a sheep, and the reason this is down here is because we've talked about the fact that um, in ancient times, and especially in Bible times, and especially in the first half of the Bible times, 
um, we see that the way that money was measured was by livestock in a lot of cases. And if we don't put this on this side of the graph before we go into a series on what the Bible says about money, we might miss what a lot of Bible verses are about. That there was a day, long, long, long ago, where there was no money, there was no cash. There was just stuff and time and effort and these things, right? And so we talked about the fact that in Bible times, there are times where it talks about someone being really rich, and it doesn't say that they're a millionaire. It doesn't say that they're a billionaire, right? It says they own 3,000 camels. And, and, and in Bible times, you go, oh, 3,000 camels. That guy is rich. Yes, why? Because livestock was the way that they measured things. So we talked about that. We talked about um, the time period in history where there was a barter economy. Do you remember that? Where before this existed, all you did was like trade your stuff and your time and your energy and your camels and your sheep. That's how it was. And so I wanted to correct something that I said wrong last week, right at the top of this sermon. Maybe some of you caught. Did you guys catch that I made a mistake last week? So um, one thing that I said last week is I said that um, about 6,000 years ago on this planet, there was no cash and, there, and the world was, survived on a barter economy. Now that is true. That would have been true on this earth 6,000 years ago. But then I also talked about the time period where Job and Abraham lived. And I talked about how Job and Abraham lived in a time where it was pretty much a barter economy and that wealth was measured in things like sheep rather than be in dollars. But I said that that was 6,000 years ago. That was a mistake. So I just wanted to be clear. Um, Abraham and Job lived about 4,000 years ago, not about 6,000 years ago. So that's what I said in the sermon. I was wrong. I'm better with words than numbers, so I'm sorry. Okay, I mean, I was, I was literally a couple of millennia off. That's kind of a big mistake, and so sorry. So not 6,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago is what I should have said. Um, I hope that that did not throw anybody off. Like, I, I don't know how many of you caught that, but I hope that there wasn't anybody that was like, he doesn't even know when Job and Abraham lived, and so now I'm going to dismiss everything else this guy says, and I hope you did not do that, because I think there were a lot of other things in that sermon that were very true and important. Um, so, wanted to correct that. So, moving on. Reviewing last week. So, money exists as an ex a medium of exchange, and this is the real stuff of this world. And when the Bible talks to us about our possessions, it's talking to us not simply about the dollars that we haven't spent yet, but all of this. And so there are going to be verses in the Bible about oxen that you might go, well, that has nothing to do with me. I don't own an ox. Yes, it has something to do with you. It's related to your stuff. All of this stuff is, um, is the stuff that God has made. And in fact, that brings us to the second point. Last week, we also learned that we are God's money managers. You remember that? And that's why on this screen we wrote the word God's here with like possession, right? God, God owns all this, God owns this, God owns this, God owns this. All of everything belongs to God. We said that everything in this world that we call ours in some sense isn't even ours because it's so temporary. We talked about how human life is so temporary and people die and then their stuff just gets passed on to somebody else and that person dies and it gets passed on to someone else. Right? And nobody really is able to own it for very long because life is so short. And meanwhile, God is the one who continues to own all of the stuff. Um, and so we talked about that, and we also talked specifically about Bible verses. I think we looked at two or three, some of which were God himself speaking in the first person, saying, I'm the one that owns everything. You remember those verses? That God owns all of the things. And so that brings us to the whole point of this series, if God owns everything, then all of our stuff is his stuff, and we are his money managers, and so everybody in this room, in a sense, is spending someone else's money. That's the idea behind this series. Everything is his stuff, and so we need to think like that, and we need to act like that as we live. Like, if we're going to understand what is the Bible, what is the view that we are to have about our stuff, I think step one is to recognize it's all his. 
Now, that does not mean we have to be pedantic about it. That does not mean we have to change all of our vocabulary drastically. I will tell you right now, I do not. When I leave the house, I usually don't say to my wife, honey, I'm leaving God's house now. I'm going to get in God's car now and drive down God's street to go to God's gas station and put God's gas in God's car, right? I don't say that. Now, that is theologically accurate, right? Yes, but it's obnoxious, right? So we don't talk that way. Christians historically have not put the word gods in front of every single noun, okay? So we don't talk like that, but we should think like that. We should live like that, realizing it's all his and he has the right to tell us what to do with his stuff. And so that's why one of the reasons we said last week that this is not going to be a series on tithing. This is not going to be a series on church giving. It's going to be about honoring God with 100% of our stuff, with 100% of his stuff, which includes the stuff we give away and the stuff we save and the stuff we spend and the stuff we consume. We should consider the owner's will for all of that. So that gets us now to, so I think that's enough review that that gets us to where we've laid the foundation and here we go for today's sermon. So today's sermon is titled Eternal Investments. And I want to talk with you about making an investment in eternity. And I'd like to teach you from the book of Luke, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. If you have your Bible, you can turn there or you can find it on your phone. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. Most of the verses I'm going to read to you right now are a parable that Jesus taught. In fact, my Bible um, titles this section, The Parable of the Dishonest Manager. So I'm going to teach you the parable of the dishonest manager this morning. And um, first of all, I think it's a very interesting parable. And it's kind of an obscure one. So there are going to be a few of you here who have never heard it before. You're just going to go, I didn't even know that was in the Bible, never heard that story. I, the reason I say it's obscure is just because people don't teach on it. It is rarely... It is rarely taught on. I have been going to church for decades, and I don't think I've ever heard this passage preached on live, ever. Like, I've not ever been sitting in the crowd, listening to a preacher, and this was the text they were teaching. Not in all my years of going to church have I heard anyone preach on this. I'm not saying no one's preached on it. People have. I've gone on the internet. Like, there, I've listened to sermons on it. There's people out there that have done it. I'm just saying I've never actually been sitting in church and heard anyone teach this. That's how rare it is. Um, the other thing is this passage is a little bit controversial, it's a little bit disagreed upon. Like different people have like different you know, opinions, different interpretations of what they think it means. There's even a really confusing part that when I get to it, I bet you there are going to be some of you that are going to be like, hey, oh, whoa, I have that, no. And so there's like a part that's kind of confusing. How could that be in there? And so we'll get to that. And I think that's about it. I need to stop talking about it and just read it to you. Okay, so you ready? Have I piqued your interest? All right, so I'm going to read the parable. I'm going to read maybe the two verses that come right after the parable, because that'll shed light on it. And in fact, I think when you read all the way to verse 13, because Jesus tells this parable that's about money, and then he talks about money, to, like after he's done telling the story, he talks about money for several more verses. So I'm just going to keep reading until he stops talking about money. So here it is. Uh, Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. He also said to his disciples, so the he there is Jesus. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What should I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors, 
How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. For the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Let me pause right there. Do you see where the difficulty and the controversy comes from with this parable? As you're reading through it, you're going, wait a minute. It sure seems like Jesus is telling a story about a dishonest person, right? And you're sitting there going, "Mm, that guy's wrong. Let's see what happens. Let's see when he gets, you know smitten at the end of the story or something, right? Because this guy's dishonest. And then you get to the end of the story and Jesus makes him the hero of the story. Did you catch that? This guy's dishonest. And then Jesus says, be like him, essentially, in verse 9. What? That doesn't make any sense. I thought Jesus was pro-honesty. He is pro-honesty. Let me go ahead and keep reading. I'm going to read just like three or four more verses, and then we're going to go back and we'll take this parable just a few verses at a time and we'll get to the bottom of it. Let me keep reading. Verse 10. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No household slave can be the slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be slaves to both God and money. And so here we see something similar to what we learned last week, that there will be times where you have to choose between God and money. Like, who do you live for? What is your life going to be about? So let's go back to the parable now. So in verse 1 of this chapter, Jesus starts telling the story, and the story has two main characters, and he introduces the two main characters to us in the first verse, right? He said, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So two characters, rich man and manager, right? The rich man is the owner of all of the things in the parable, and the manager, you can tell, is clearly his money manager. This is his accountant. This is his CFO. This is his, to use the old word, his steward, Right? This is the person who pays his bills and keeps tracks of who owes him money and doing his business deals. This is his money manager. And so you got the rich man who's the owner, and you got this money manager or this steward. And the rich man receives an accusation about his money manager, that his money manager was squandering his possessions. And apparently, the, the rich man, the owner, he believes the accusation. Because look at verse number two. It says, so he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. He fires the guy. He says, I heard this report about you. You're fired. But you can tell that the way that the verse is written, and you can especially tell by the way the story unfolds, it is not an immediate firing. He does not say, you're fired, get out of here right now. He seems to say something like, you're fired effective tomorrow, or you're fired effective next month, right? He says, you're going to go, but give an account of your management. You're going to stay on staff for just a little bit more, enough time to give one final account, and then you're out of here. So now what? Look at verse 3. Then the manager said to himself, what should I do since my master is taking the management away from me? 
And you could tell, by the, it doesn't say that he took the management away from me, right? He's about to. He says later on, he says, I know what I'll do so that when I'm what? Removed from management, when I'm removed from management, meaning I have not been removed yet, I'm about to be. This is something that's about to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. So he's trying to figure out what do I do between now and about to be true? So the manager says to himself, what should I do since my master is taking the management away from me? And some of you have been in this situation where you go, I don't know what my next job is. I'm about to be unemployed. And do I, do I try to stay in the same job that I'm in now? This guy's probably going to have a hard time with that. He does not have a good reference here. Okay, maybe some of you said, maybe I should go into a whole other career, right? I don't know what to do next. And that's what this guy's saying. What should I do since my master is taking the management away from me? It's not going to be my job anymore. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. I can't go get a blue collar job. I can't go do manual labor. I don't even have a body for that, right? I'm a numbers guy. I just sit around and put this and subtract this. Like, that's all I've been doing. I can't go and dig ditches. I can't go and do, like, work, work, right? And I'm ashamed to beg. I don't be one of, be one of those people that's begging for money. What do I do? And then he gets his genius idea. He goes, <laughs> I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from management, when the firing is fully complete... There will be people who will say, hey, you don't have a place to live? You can come live in our spare bedroom. Hey, you don't have a place to stay? No, no, no. Come stay in our, our mother-in-law suite. We got a whole place you can live. You don't have any money for food? Oh, come and eat at our house. You can come and eat at our house every single night. He's thinking, I need to win some friends for myself and fast. So he comes up with this idea. What is the idea? Look at it, verse 5. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. Now, the fact that it says each one of his master's debtors makes me think there were probably a bunch of them. The story actually only talks about two, but I'm assuming in the story, those two are supposed to be representative of all of the master's debtors, okay? He calls in however many there were, and he says, how much do you owe my master? Now, look what happens with the first guy. The first guy responds, a hundred measures of olive oil. He brings in the guy that owes his master money, right? How much do you owe? I owe 100 measures of olive oil. Now look what he says. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and make it 50. Ooh. 50 is less than 100, right? I know I said I'm not good with numbers, but I'm sure of this one, okay? This is a 50% discount. This guy owes 100, and he goes, I owe 100. And the money manager goes, well, listen, um, pretty soon I need to give a final accounting to my master and tell him, like, this is where everything stands. This is how much everybody owes. So let's take your debt of 100 and let's say it's 50. That's what I'm going to write down. You make your sheet match mine and then I'm going to pass that on to him when the time is done. You're only going to owe 50. Now, what is that guy going to do? That guy's going to be really happy. Well, 50, but I owe 100. I owe 50. Oh, this is huge. Can you imagine if somebody just said your mortgage was half of what it was? I mean, this is probably months and months and months of work that suddenly it's like, no, I don't owe 100. I just owe 50. Yeah, we're going to say 50. Okay, well, thank you so much. You're like my new best friend, right? And then he goes to the next guy. Look what he does with the next guy. Verse 7. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? 100 measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. Now, maybe he didn't like this guy as much. I don't know. This guy got a 20% discount. The other guy got a 50% discount. I don't know why. But you can see it's the same principle, right? He says, I owe 100. And he goes, now you owe 80. Like, you make yours say 80, and I'm going to report that you owe 80. And that guy's going, but wait, I owe 100. Shh, shh, shh. No, no, no. You owe 80 now. Oh, I owe 80 now. All right, right? And so that's what he does. They make it and he says, okay, well, he writes down that he owes 80 and that's what he turns in. So he does this, I assume, with all of the master's debtors and he now has what? 
a whole bunch of people who owe him favors. Why is he doing it? Why is he giving this 20% discount for you, 50% discount for you, 30% for you? Why is he doing this? He said why he's doing it in verse 4. Okay, and for, just before he did it, he said, could you put verse 4 up? I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. That's why he's doing it. So he's getting all of these people in this position where he goes, hey, you, you only have to pay 80, not 100. And they're all going, wow, what a friend. Thank you so much. Oh, goodness me. If I, I just wish there was some way I could thank you. And he's thinking, oh, oh there is. Next month, I will let you know how you can show me appreciation for what I just did today. And that's what he does with a bunch of people. Now, here's the shocking part of the parable. Here's the part that it's like, is this the Bible? I don't even understand how this could be in here. Look at verse 8. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. What? Why in the world did he do that? Wasn't he being dishonest? He's, the master praised the unrighteous manager, clearly he's unrighteous, that's what it says. The master praised the unrighteous manager because, now this is important, it doesn't say because he acted dishonestly. There's a specific thing he praised him for, because he had acted astutely. Now, astutely is a word we don't use a whole lot, but astute means something like wise, smart, shrewd, clever. And apparently, the commendation here is not, hey, good job for being dishonest, but ooh, now that was clever. You just set up for the rest of your life or for who knows how many years. You have all these people that are going to take you in, all these people that are going to pay your bills. Wow. But it just seems so weird that Jesus would use a negative example like this, right? Why in the world would he use a dishonest person as his example? So there are multiple theories about this parable. As I told you before, lots of disagreements and lots of people that think different thoughts about this parable. I'll give you a couple of the major ones. Um, two theories that people have about this parable, and basically the purpose of these two theories is, is to make the, the manager in the story less dishonest. The idea is, it just seems unthinkable that Jesus would tell a story where the, bad, the, the guy that's dishonest has some aspect of his life that is like, be like that. Like, it just seems crazy that Jesus would use such a negative example. So we got to figure out some way in which this guy is not as dishonest as he seems. And so I think that's the motivation for this. But here are the theories. One theory is that what this man was doing was not actually like gouging his master one last time as he was leaving, but rather he was simply taking off his own commission. That's, that's one of the things that if you like Google around and look at what this passage means, you'll see that sometimes on the internet, stuff like that. That basically he had his commission as the bill collector or as the you know, money manager, and then there's the amount that was actually owed. And so he was basically just cutting off his commission and just making them pay the owner exactly what they owed, but taking his fee off. Is it possible that that's what this story is about? Eh, maybe. Um, I mean, I could imagine a situation in which he's thinking to himself, I'm about to be unemployed. These people owe not only my master money, but they owe me my fee. But if I'm going to be unemployed, like if I'm not going to be the, the bill collector by the time they can pay, I'm not going to get my part, right? You can see how he's thinking this, that, that, that they can't pay right now. And, and I really need it right now because I'm not, like, I can't just be like, oh, no, next month. Like, I'm not going to be employed next month by him. So I'll go ahead and just knock it off now in order to get the favor from them later on. I mean, I suppose that's possible. It doesn't seem like that's what the story's saying. Jesus does not make that obvious. And in fact, if it's commission, it seems really high to me. The first guy has 100 measures of olive oil and he says, write 50. 
Is it really possible that his commission was 50%? Like, is it possible that the guy who owed this master money owed an equal amount? Like, the, he, the money that he owed was the same amount that he owed the owner he owed to the bill collector? The commission for the bill collector was the same amount as the total debt? That, that, seems, that seems like un- unlikely. Also, the passage doesn't say that he cut his commission off. You would just have to imagine that the people in, in this day and age just assumed that, and they would have just known that that was, was what he was doing. But it's not obvious to me that, that, that they would be able to just figure that out without him saying it. He doesn't say that. So the other theory is that maybe he was taking off interest, not his commission, but it was interest off the loan. In fact, he was taking off illegal interest. Okay, and this might be a this 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 one kind of fits a little bit with the Old Testament because I think there are Old Testament verses that talk about um, how Jewish people were not supposed to charge interest to other Jewish people when they were doing loans. That if you go back in the Old Testament, I think there were times where the Hebrew people I think they were allowed to charge interest to like outsiders, but like Hebrew people were not supposed to um, charge interest when they did a loan to their own countrymen. And so the idea here would be this is a Jewish context, right? There's this is Jesus, he's Jewish. There he is in Israel or wherever he is, and he's telling this story. And the idea here is this guy's charging interest that's against God's law. And so the steward comes along and, and takes off the illegal interest and, and kind of forces the master to be fair and right in those last few weeks and gives these people a discount. Is that what's happening here? He's just taken off the illegal interest and he suddenly became you know, good and, and really interested in being holy and doing the right thing. Uh, maybe. Um, it, it, again, it doesn't seem obvious that that's what he's doing. The story doesn't say it. You'd have to believe that the interest rates were very different for the different loans, which I guess is possible. Maybe you could have a 50% rate of interest on olive oil and a 20% interest on wheat, maybe. Um, I mean, that's a, those are wildly different interest rates, but maybe that's how it worked out. I don't know. But again, when you look at the story, it does not specifically say that the guy was being good and taking off illegal interest. It just says he took it off. And so I'll tell you, I'm not 100% sure, but I lean toward believing that what's happening here in this story is he's just being dishonest. He's just like gouging his, his owner one last time on the way out. I think this was just pure dishonesty. This guy, if he was, the thing that he was accused of at the beginning of the story, squandering his master's wealth, if that was true, he just chooses to do it one more time on the way out, right? He chooses to, um, to cheat his master one more time on his way out. Or, or perhaps... Um, he, is, he was falsely accused. It just says that he was accused of squandering his manager's possessions, or his, his owner's possessions, his, the rich man's possessions. Maybe it's not even a true accusation. He's sitting there going, well, that's not fair. I'm losing my job, and I didn't even do anything wrong, right? This guy just heard something about me and is now firing me, and he goes, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go ahead and do the thing he's accused me of. Like, I'm getting punished for the crime anyway. I might as well, I might as well get to do it. So I'll just, I'll go do it. I don't know for sure what he was doing, but I think that this guy, and this is real obvious by the way the parable unfolds, he was using his access to his master's money to set himself up for the next phase of his life. Now, if that's true, if he's being dishonest and he's just setting up for the next section of his life, why in the world is he commended? Why would Jesus tell the story in such a way that he's praised because he acted astutely? And this is what I think. This is my theory. I think that a lot of Jesus' parables have just one point. 
And it's not that every single thing in the parable is something we're supposed to learn from. It's not that every single detail of the parable is supposed to have something that matches our day and age. There's one main thing that Jesus is trying to say. I think probably most of the parables that Jesus taught are that way. When he teaches a parable, it's not, here are the 14 lessons that you can learn from this story. And we're not trying to figure out what every single little piece of the parable thing. What does the wheat stand for? What does the olive oil mean? Sometimes it's just there's one point, there's one thing he's trying to get to. And I think in this parable, Jesus is saying... To imitate the dishonest manager. He pretty much says it in verse 9, which we'll get to. But I don't think he's saying to imitate the dishonest manager in every conceivable way, including his dishonesty. That's not the part that he's focusing on. I think he's saying imitate the dishonest manager in one, one specific way. Plan ahead like this guy did. When you're in a situation where your stuff is temporary and there's all these years that you're looking forward to, you should be thinking, what do I do now? like that guy did. I don't think he was saying be dishonest like him. I think he was saying be forward thinking like him. I think Jesus' point here is it is astute to use the temporary to affect the long term. Which, by the way, is the point of the parable, kind of regardless of which one of those views you take. Like whether you believe that he was cutting off his commission, whether you believe he was taking off the illegal interest, or whether you think he was just flat out being dishonest, I think no matter which one you pick, you're still, at the end of the day, what's the point of the parable? It's that you're supposed to use the temporary to affect the long term, right? That's the point here. In fact, uh, Doug Davison just told me when we were talking about this parable that he was thinking about, like, growing up, his dad even said to him, um, like, even in a, like a, a bad situation, like, there's always something you can learn from it, even if it's like the person didn't do what they're supposed to do. Like, there's still a lesson in it for you to learn. And it might be that this guy didn't do what he's supposed to do, but there's a lesson in it for us to learn. And I think the lesson is use the temporary to positively affect the long term. It's what the guy did in the story, and it's what Jesus says to do after he's done telling the story. Look at verse 9. Okay? So Jesus tells the story, and then he tells us this. And I tell you, so this is not, he's not, this is not the story anymore. Story's done, okay? Lived happily ever after, and now Jesus is talking to the people, that he, the disciples that he's talking to. And he says, I tell you this, make friends for yourselves. By means of the unrighteous money. Now, that's the thing that the guy did in the parable, right? He made friends for himself that said, hey, you can come live with me. He made friends for himself by means of the unrighteous money. Now, he's not talking about the guy anymore. He's talking to the people that he's talking to. And he says, I tell you, be like him. Make friends for yourselves, right? Use your money that way, right? Make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money. I think he's saying like the stuff of this earth, worldly wealth, okay? You only have access to it for just a little bit of time. So by means of worldly wealth, go ahead and make friends for yourself so that when it fails, now when does money fail us? What's the answer? Yeah, when we die. Now in the story, the money failed when he lost the management, right? In the story. But Jesus is not talking about the story anymore. He's talking about regular people now. When it fails. So he's saying when, when you die. Just like we remember last week we talked about that, that parable where the guy dies and, Jesus, and, and God says to the rich fool, who will have all your stuff now that, you know, once you're dead tomorrow? So he says, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money so that when it fails, right, when you die, when it's done, when it's not yours anymore, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. The application Jesus gives for this is use your money that you have temporary access to so that one day you don't have it anymore. What happens? That it makes a difference in eternity. That you're welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
And this matches with verse 8 as well. If you just go up a verse, the last thing that Jesus said right as he was ending the parable, he says, the master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted astutely, right? He was, that was wise, that was clever. And then look what Jesus says next. And I don't know if I would have understood this verse, but another pastor kind of explained this to me, and I think he's right. For the sons of this age, so I think that means the people of this world, right? For the sons of this age are more astute right? They're wiser, they're, they're more shrewd, they're more clever with their, their money and their stuff. The people of this world, the sons of this age, are more astute than the sons of light, that's Christians, that's God's people, right? The people of Jesus. The sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. I think he's saying, when it comes to the people of this world, they're not dumb, they have figured out how to take situations and maximize them. They figure out how to take situations. Okay, I've got this guy's money and here's what I'm going to do so that someone welcomes me into their home. They are, they are more clever with the stuff of this world than Christians are with spiritual matters and the stuff of eternity. And you know that that is true, isn't it? I mean, isn't it true that there are lots and lots of clever people in this world that know how to manipulate this world to make things better for them in this world? Yeah, this is true. They are astute in that sense. Here, I'll just use this as an example. It's not about anybody in particular, but I think this kind of thing happens. Imagine you have someone who has like authority, but it's just temporary. But while they have it, they try to make sure it sets them up for when they don't have it anymore. Imagine if somebody is like a governor. And on the last few days of their governorship, they give out pardons to people who are like wealthy and well-connected. Okay, have you heard of this? They give out these pardons to people who are wealthy and well-connected so that when the governorship is over, there are all these wealthy, connected people who owe them favors. Okay, do you think that kind of thing happens? Yeah, that kind of thing happens. And I think Jesus is saying, yeah, that kind of thing happens. People in this world are that smart. They have figured out that. They are smarter than a lot of us Christians are when we just sit there and live our life as if this is all there is and we don't factor in the next million years. We understand that there is an eternity and they're sitting around setting up for the rest of their life and here we are knowing there's a billion years to come, there's an eternity to come and we're sitting there just living like, like, it, like it's just, like, like this, what, what's in front of us is all there is. They're more astute in dealing with the things of this world than Christians are in dealing with what really matters forever. And I think he's just simply saying, use money now for then. And if that's what Jesus is saying with this parable, and I think he is, then that matches with other things that Jesus said. That matches with other parts of the Bible. That would be just consistent with the Christian message. Look at this. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, starting in verse 19, this is a very famous passage. So the parable I just read to you, not famous. This verse, super famous. Jesus said, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, right? So this matches with what we learned last week as well, right? There's no reason for you to think this earth is all there is, so I'm just going to collect a bunch of stuff for myself on this earth. And last week we learned that the emphasis from the passage we learned last week, the emphasis of what, the reason you don't need to collect treasures for yourself on earth is because you will not last. But in this particular verse, he takes the other side. He says, also, it will not last, Right? One reason that you don't need to be all about, oh, what about the stuff of this earth? You will not last. You will die one day and not be able to take any of it with you. But on this occasion, he also said, the stuff doesn't even last. It's temporary. And then he says, but, 
Like in, in, in you know, contrast to don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth, he says, but collect for yourselves treasures in, what's the word? Heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. He seems to be saying that there's something that you can do in this life to make a difference in heaven, right? And we already know, well, I know how to collect treasure for myself on earth, right? Because I'm on earth, so I know how to do that. But there must be some way to do something in this life to collect something for myself in heaven. That must be possible because Jesus said to do it. Let me show you another place where the Bible talks like this. 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing a letter. He's writing a letter to Timothy, telling him how to pastor his church, basically. And, and as he's talking to him about how to handle his, his job, he tells him how to handle the rich people that are in his church. That's the part I'm about to read. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 17. I believe Paul is telling Timothy, here's what, I, what you need to teach to the rich people in your congregation. He says this, Instruct those who are rich in the present age, Okay, so these are people in your, in your congregation, Timothy, that are rich in the present age. Instruct them not to be arrogant. Step one, get the rich people sometime all together and say, don't be arrogant. Or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. Do you see that all throughout the scripture? The, the, the wealth of this world, it's so uncertain. It's so temporary. It's so there and then gone. And you are there and then gone. Everything about this life is there and then gone. But there's a certain eternity after all this. So he says, tell them not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God. Okay? Mr. Permanent. But on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them, this is the next verse, instruct them to do what is good. This is not the verse I'm reading. Can you switch it? Okay. Instruct them to do good. Now, who's the them? Do you remember? Yeah, the rich people that were in the verse before. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be, what's the word? Generous, to be willing to what? Share. Now why? Why should these rich people be generous and be willing to share? He goes on. He doesn't end the sentence there. He says they should be generous and willing to share. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the age to come. These people with all this money, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to be generous and share. Why? Because somehow that's connected to storing up for themselves something later on in a whole other age. This is, I mean, this is all throughout the Bible. Let me show you one more. This is, this is Jesus in Luke chapter 14. This one's really powerful. Now, Luke chapter 14 would be two chapters before Luke chapter 16. So if you were someone who was reading the book of Luke like 2,000 years ago, you probably would have read the story I'm about to read to you before you even got to the parable of the dishonest manager, right? You'd, you'd already know this. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 12. This is not a parable. This is a story where Jesus is hanging out with this guy who invited him to his house for like a, it looks like a sort of a fancy banquet. And he tells the guy, this is how you can handle banquets from now on. This is how you should handle <clears throat> the dinners that you throw. So here's the story, Luke 14, verse 12. He also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, 
and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Isn't that interesting? He says you need to show this like generosity and this care to the people who are poor and maimed and blind. Why? Specifically because they cannot repay you. You, want, you purposely want to use your money in such a way that they can't repay you. The goal is not to take stuff of, in this world and use it in such a way that more stuff of this world comes back to you. No, no, no. Purposely use it in such a way that you cannot be repaid. And it's interesting, he doesn't just end it there and go, because you're not supposed to be repaid. He says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When the righteous people are resurrected, when we are living with God forever and ever, you will be repaid. Just don't worry about getting repaid here. Set it up so that you get repaid then, when you can keep it forever. And so as you can see, in more than one place in the Bible, the, t- the teaching is use money now in a way that makes a difference for all of eternity. And so I want to encourage you in a series like this to invest in eternity. When we think about what the Bible says, we've got to think about the fact that, number one, what we said last week is true, it's all his, and number two, real life is yet to come. And so how do we, how do we make a difference in the little bit of time we have right now? in the time that's going to matter forever. And so I wanted to give you two ways that you can invest in eternity. There may be more than two ways, but I want to give you two ways to invest in eternity. One way is to be generous and share and care for the poor. Where do I get that idea from? The verses that I just read to you. Like This this did not take a lot of scholarship to figure this out. I just read the verses and realized there is a connection between our generosity and our sharing and our caring for the poor and what happens in the age to come, what happens at the resurrection of the righteous, right? He says to the rich people, be generous and share so that you have a foundation in the age to come. He says to the guy in Luke, um, throw the banquet for the, for the poor so that you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. Clearly, if we're trying to figure out how do I store up treasures in heaven, it's obvious one of the ways you do that is you share and you give away and you're generous and you care for the poor. That's one of the ways you store treasures in heaven and not on earth. And then the second way I wanted to encourage you to invest in eternity is to use money to make disciples. Use your money that you have in this life to make disciples, people who follow Jesus. Like, use your money so that people would come to know Jesus. Now, where do I get that from? Well, I think the Bible implies that pretty strongly all over the place. I do not have a specific verse that says, use your money to make disciples of Jesus. But I want you to follow the logic here of what I'm trying to get you to think through. If you have stuff on this earth that you can't take with you to heaven, but you can use stuff on this earth to help someone else go to heaven, then that's a good use of that stuff. Right? If I can use stuff that I can't take with me anyway and help someone who could go with me, then that's a good use of that stuff. And whether we're talking about funding missionaries or whether we're talking about you using your kitchen table to have someone over for dinner and you share the gospel with them so that they might know Jesus and be saved, that's a good use of money. If stuff can't go to heaven but people can, then it is astute to transfer money to people. Isn't it? 
So if you want to invest in eternity, I encourage you to be generous and share and care for the poor and use your money to make disciples of Jesus. That's living not just for the here and now, but for the time period that's going to matter forever. So let me end by just reading to you the last few verses of this section one more time. Jesus said, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No household slave can be the slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be slaves to both God and money. What we do with our possessions reveals who we belong to. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would be hitting us with this today in the way that we need it. I know this probably applies in lots of different ways. I mean, the focus of the passage is money, although it's funny, it's Mother's Day, and certainly parenting is a stewardship. Certainly parenting follows along with the same principle that we have just a few years, and then they have the rest of their life, and then they die, and they have the rest of their eternity, and we should steward those years. And money is connected to years. We learned that last week. But as far as the specific emphasis for the sermon... I pray that you would shape us into a people who use our money wisely, that we don't live for the little, tiny, teeny, little few years we have here, but we would live in light of all of eternity. And so I pray you would teach that to us. I thank you for these words. I thank you for this truth. I submit this sermon like, to you and to these people, and I pray that you would use it in a powerful way. But ultimately, I ask that it would be you, by the power of your spirit, that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would help us to see clearly, and maybe even take some of us and just turn us in a different direction than we were going. I pray that we would please you in the way that we handle your stuff. And I thank you so much for being such a good God that in pleasing you, it's, it seems to me the story is saying that if we please you with your stuff, it somehow contributes to our eternal joy. Thank you. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.